I love a good podcast, as you know, and I'm always happy to share resources for parents who are looking for creative, smart content that both entertains and offers enrichment for curious kids everywhere. So I'm happy to let you know about this awesome new show from the creators of the hit kids podcast, Who Smarted, and Netflix's Brainchild, The Adventurous World of Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as Math. Every episode follows Max and Molly, who have just been recruited into a secret order of problem solvers on an adventure through time, packed with puzzles, hidden equations, history, and laughs. The series explores themes that kids like ours love, like the stories behind math, critical thinking, code breaking, pattern solving, and more. And episodes transport kids into iconic periods in history like Pythagoras's Ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England. So cool. New episodes drop every Thursday and are about 15 minutes long, a perfect length for those car rides, for meal times, for break times, and bedtimes. What I love about this show is that it's kind of like listening to a book on tape. The story is captivating and includes lots of problems listeners can try to solve. The voice actors are fantastic, and the math concepts are seamlessly weaved into the narrative. It's exactly the kind of show Ash would have loved a few years ago, especially during our homeschool years, because finding that perfect blend of entertaining and educating, it isn't always easy. So tune into Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. The the big thing that Gift of Failure is about is about trying to get our kids back into a state where they're intrinsically motivated to want to do stuff, not because we're dangling carrots in front of them or making sticker charts or threatening them or promising to pay them for grades. And one of the ways we can do that is by engaging them in the process because that's giving them autonomy over the details of their lives. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber, and today I'm so excited to be bringing you my conversation with Jessica Leahy. Jessica is an educator, writer, and speaker, and she's the author of one of my most favorite parenting books, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. Jessica is also an English and writing teacher, a correspondent for The Atlantic, commentator for Vermont Public Radio, and she writes the parent-teacher conference column for The New York Times. In our conversation, we talk about how we can best prepare our kids for an independent, successful adulthood in the way we practice autonomy, supportive parenting versus overparenting, what it means to let our kids fail to help them thrive, and how we can help our kids learn how to sit with frustration. So many great nuggets from this interview. I hope you enjoy it. And if you aren't already signed up for my Tilt Parenting newsletter, I'd love for you to join me. Every Thursday, I send out a short email, including a quick note for me, a link to that week's podcast episode, highlights of any upcoming events, and links to five must-read articles from the news that week that are relevant to parents of differently wired kids. Just visit TiltParenting.com and sign up at the bottom where it says, Join the Revolution. Thank you so much. And now here is my conversation with Jessica. Hey, Jessica, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This is a conversation I've been wanting to have with you for so long. So I'm just thrilled to bring you on. But in case our listeners aren't as familiar with your story as I am, would you mind just before we get into the meat of your book, The Gift of Failure, could you tell us a little bit about who you are and your background and how you got into the work that you're doing? 
Yeah, sure thing. So I um, I've been a teacher for almost 20 years. Uh, I actually went to law school to do juvenile law. I was I had a job all lined up. I was positive that's what I was going to do. And then I was asked to teach a class. And, and uh, that was sort of it. I came home that first day understanding that teaching was what I was going to be doing. Um, so I finished law school and went straight into teaching afterwards. And about, you know, six years ago, or so, I've always been a writer, but about six years ago, I started writing about education specifically and sort of the art and craft of teaching. And that has just sort of over very slowly led to, you know, writing for The Atlantic and uh, writing a column for three years in The New York Times called The Parent Teacher Conference and uh, the book The Gift of Failure. So it's been just an awesome ride. And uh, and it was funny when I first started writing about education, I thought it was really just for me to sort of record what I was doing in my classroom because I was fairly sure no one wanted to read about teaching. <laughs> and I've been really, really happy to be wrong. And I was, it's been such an honor to sort of be at the confluence of education and parenting and um, help both sides talk to each other. Um, I, I sort of was feeling like it was becoming increasingly adversarial. And so having a part in um, helping teachers talk to parents and parents talk to teachers and, and get the communication lines back open has been such an honor. Well, it's such a valuable point of view, too. I mean, I think as parents, we often feel like it's a mysterious relationship. And especially parents raising differently wired kids, we feel we don't want to have an adversarial relationship. Right. But we, we feel like we don't know how to navigate that relationship. So I really appreciate you kind of bridging that gap for so many of us. Well, I think it's just become it's become something different than what it used to be. It used to be about learning. And there used to be also teaching used to be a much more um, respected tradition. Uh, you know, in some countries, uh, it still is a very respected profession. Um, you know, in some romance languages like Italian, for example, you refer to teachers usually as, as sort of a, in the more honorific sort of voice. And in the United States, it's become a bit of a power struggle. And that's been really hard to watch. It's it's also been very hard to live. And I think that leaves parents confused about the relationship. And I think it leaves teachers confused about the relationship. And that's been hard on both sides. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Well, let's talk about your book, The Gift of Failure. I think I probably reference it at least every three to four episodes of my podcast. <laughs> so uh, if you if listeners, if you've been a longtime listener, you are primed for this conversation. But Jessica, could you tell us a little bit about the premise behind the book? And maybe even, you know, I love the story of how it came about as well. And and then we'll talk more about the key takeaways. Yeah, so like I said, it was Teachers and parents sort of confused about where the lines are between home and school and who should be doing what and how much rescuing should ha be happening and how much the parents should be, you know, interfering in the process of the grading and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I joke about the fact that, you know, my view from my high horse as a teacher was really quite lovely. You know, I had in my mind, you know, I was doing the noble thing as the teacher and this was about learning and blah, blah, blah. And increasingly, I was feeling... For lack of a better way to say it, I was feeling really protective of my students. And I was also noticing that my students were becoming less and less interested in learning. And, and that was really troubling to me. And at the same time, I had this sneaking suspicion, and I didn't have any evidence for it at the time, that some of the things that parents were doing to 
protect their kids, to make life as wonderful for their kids as possible, to, you know, it's hard to see our kids frustrated. And so we want to save them from that. And and some of those things I had the sneaking suspicion were undermining not just motivation to learn, but the actual ability to learn. And, uh, you know, I wrote an article for The Atlantic in 2013 called Why Parents Need to Let Their Children Fail, which was sort of the tiny edge of this very big wedge that um, I ended up, you know, really researching for years and found out it actually is true that not only does the way we parent our kids, that sort of overly directive way of parenting kids and making sure they have everything they need and that they know exactly what the next step is going to be so they don't get frustrated or upset that that not only undermines motivation to learn, it does undermine the ability to learn. And and like I said, from my high horse that, that you know, I got pissed off at the parents of my students. And, and uh, yeah, I had to realize that I was doing the exact same thing to my own kids. And I, I found out about that when I realized that my son, Finnegan, who now is 14, but was nine at the time, couldn't tie his own shoes. And I, that was because I had been doing it for him simply because you know, at first, I guess, because I didn't want him to be frustrated and later on, just because it was easier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, as mad as I wanted to be at the parents of my students, I, I just couldn't because, you know, I was doing the exact same thing. I was the parents of my students. And so now I've got to figure this out, not only for um, my students and help them get reengaged in their learning, but also because I've got to turn this thing around for my own kids. And, Nothing will nothing will put a fire under you like realizing that you're screwing up your own kids. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So then you wrote the book, The Gift of Failure. And what has the reception been for that book and the community at large? It's been great. I mean, you know, I think so there was a lot of hype going into the publication of the book. I had written this article, like I said, in The Atlantic, and that went viral. And so there was a lot of um, interest around that being a book. And so you know, so there was a high expectations. And that was a lot of stress. And when it came out, I also prepared myself, you know, I had been a journalist for a while, and I'd learned not to read the comments. And I'd learned, you know, that not everyone's going to agree with you. And that was fine. So I was really prepared for a big backlash when Gift of Failure came out. And believe me, there are plenty of angles to come at it from. And, and some of them people have, you know, they see it as, you know, lackadaisical parenting or hands-off parenting, and, and that's not at all what it is. It's sort of a misinterpretation. But I, I've been stunned by the positive reception. I mean, it's been incredibly gratifying. It's been odd and frightening and wonderful. But I get emails almost every day from parents or teachers or kids about, you know, the way the books affected their life. And that's just insane to me. Like this thing that I wrote here at the table I'm sitting at right now, actually, you know, is out there in the world and people are using it and quoting it. It's really just bizarre to me. It's really the life of a writer is so weird because you're so secluded. And then all of a sudden your words are like being quoted back to you. And that's just very, very odd. (laughs) Yes, it is. It is. But it's, uh, you know, I have to say the first time the book really came on my radar, I heard an interview you did for the Good Life Project with Jonathan Fields. And I was like, yes, yes, I just, you know, the (laughs) message so resonated with me. And it was so in alignment with the way that I want to raise my son, Asher, he's 13. And so here's where I got kind of stuck. And I and I would love to talk with you about this. Mm -hmm. I remember in the book, you talk about, I believe it was your son had a paper project that was due, and it was left at home. And you were going to the school later in the day, and you kind of had this internal tug of war about whether or not you should bring it in. And right, 
maybe you could share that story. And then, you know, I'll let you know what was hard for me to hear about that and, and how parents like me would work through a situation like that. Right. So Finnegan had had, and this is all, you know, uh, stuff I'm allowed to talk about because realize there is a ton I'm not allowed <laughs> to talk about about my children. They have made that very clear. So Finnegan really had major organizational issues, um, real executive function issues. You know, we had had a ton of meetings with the school. We, you know, it, I can't go into all of it, but believe me, it had been evaluated and evaluated and we had tried solution after solution. And so at a certain point, you know, he's at the point now where he's starting to get teased by other kids for being the kid who forgets stuff and the teachers are mad and everybody's just on us and why aren't we fixing this? And he's nine. And, you know, I'm learning a lot about the brain during all of this. And I understand that executive function is nowhere near fully cooked at nine. So I'm trying to be as patient as possible while being as supportive as possible. And in the meantime, he's left his homework at home or at home, his math homework. And I I know I can't take it to him mainly because well, there are a lot of reasons. Number one, I, I'm trying not to undermine his progress. I'm trying his teachers know I'm trying not to undermine this progress of, you know, becoming more responsible. And they're really helping by working with him at school and holding him to consequences, which is what I've asked them to do. And so I don't take the homework that day because I I just can't. And so I wait at home and and it turns out that I'm so glad I didn't take the homework because so many positive things happened that day in particular because I didn't. Finnegan came home, reported that he had to stay in from recess because he had to redo the homework, which is a whole thing that drives me crazy in and of itself, keeping kids in from recess for disciplinary stuff. But he had to stay in from recess. He had to do the homework again. Um, He also, his teacher said, you know, frankly, we're not done here. You can't go back out because you got to come up with a strategy for figuring this out. And so a lot of really great things happen. He came up with a strategy that day that has been the strategy that has worked for him for the past five years. He had to talk to an adult about stuff and self-advocate. I mean, that was a huge thing too. He didn't like talking to people about what he needed. He was scared to do that. You know, there were a lot of really good consequences that came from that, from not taking the homework that day. And if I'd taken the homework because it felt so urgent that one day, because I could save him from the teasing and I could save him from the wrath of his teacher and I could save him from another zero on homework, it would have felt really good that day. But man, it feels really, really good now, um, five years out, now that I'm, you know, I know that that day paid off in so many different ways with the system he continues to use. Well, and that's something that I really love that, you know, the stakes are not so high when they're younger and the stakes right. get higher and higher. And so it is, this is the time, you know, and I, and I say things like this to Asher all the time. This is the perfect time to be figuring that out. Like I told him this morning, there's no heart in the cooler. Like no one's waiting <laughs> for an operation at the moment. So you're all good, you know? Right. So, but here's my question, or I'd just love to know your take on this. I know for so many of us, especially our, a lot of differently wired kids have, are just on a delayed schedule and they need a lot more scaffolding. So do you have thoughts about how parents raising kids who are struggling more with executive functioning and organization and things like that, how to support them while still giving them opportunities to fail? Yeah. So I think the immediate thing I want to do when my kids are screwing up or when my kids are not understanding a concept, you know, if, especially with writing, like I could just fix it for them. And, you know, I, I, I could help them in that way. But I think I have to rely a lot as a parent on what I do as a teacher. And I think about, okay, if this were my student, not my kid, and I, there was this 
you know, wasn't this emotional issue about my wanting to just fix it for them, how would I handle this? And the way I would handle that is by asking questions like, well, you know, read the instructions to me and tell me what you think the teacher's trying to get you to do. Or, you know, before you leave the house in the morning, ask a question like, now, could you pause for just a second and go through your mental list of things you need to take with you today? Are you forgetting anything? You know, you're you're the training wheels for their executive function. And that's why, frankly, the, the heart of this book is middle school, because, you know, so much of the good stuff happens there with executive function, all that really amazing development. Even kids on a delayed schedule, and believe me, I've taught tons of them, you know, amazing things happen in middle school with executive function in terms of growth of the frontal lobe and making new connections and stuff like that. So as a teacher, I know my main job is not to solve problems for my students, but to help them figure out how to solve the problems themselves and to give them prompts to be what's called an autonomy supportive teacher or parent. I'm supporting their ability to figure it out for themselves and not solving the problem for them. And when it comes to training, we you know, some kids are on training wheels longer than others. And, and believe me, especially having a kid that had executive function problems, I was constantly going back to certain books I loved, like Late Lost and Unprepared. And That Crumpled Paper Was Due Last Week by Anna Homian. Those are books that I, they're totally worn because I was using them over and over and over again. And I just needed support. And I think using the teacher side of my brain and realizing, okay, if I was not so emotionally invested in my kid not feeling bad about himself or my kid not being so frustrated or us being mad at each other because I'm nagging again, how would I handle this as a teacher? And I think, you know, over and over again, that's sort of bailed me out. And it's the reason, actually, that the the middle school chapter in Gift of Failure really is the executive function chapter, because you can't look at executive function stuff as one. It's not one big skill. It's, you know, an umbrella over lots of different skills. And some kids are good at some stuff and some kids are good at other things. And very rarely can kids do all of that stuff all the time. So I break each of the executive function skills into their component skills and then offer ways to help be the training wheels for those particular skills instead of trying to do it all at once because you can't do it all at once. It's like that Marie Kondo tidying up book. She doesn't have you tidy up your whole entire house all at once. She has you do clothes first and then the kitchen and that kind of stuff because it's just too overwhelming to do it all at once. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned autonomy, supportive parenting. Could you mm-hmm. tell us about what a little bit more about that concept versus overparenting? So uh, I think the best, there's a couple of books by this woman named uh, Wendy Grolnick, and she writes about it in a book called something like Anxious Parents, Stressed Out Kids, and, an, and a sort of more wonky book called uh, The Psychology of Parental Control. And in that, she does some really cool exor- uh, experiments where she looks at how kids who have been directed, like overly directed, and how kids who have parents who support their ability to figure it out for themselves instead of just telling them how to do it, um, how those kids then handle things when they're the parents are not around. And it turns out that the kids who have really directive parents who tell them each new step, and teachers do this too, you know, like when you're teaching the quadratic formula, it's really tempting to say, okay, do this, now do this, now do this. No, 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 don't ask any questions about why, just do it this way. Um, When kids have overly directive parents or teachers, they get used to being told what all the steps are. And then when they're by themselves, they get frustrated really easily and they give up more easily. 
And kids with autonomy supportive parents and teachers, those kids are going to have a little bit better emotional wherewithal to stick with something and be frustrated so that they can figure out the next step for themselves. And that's really, really important, mainly because two of the most powerful teaching tools we have as teachers are these things called desirable difficulties and this other thing called formative assessment. And desirable difficulties are like this magic way of moving stuff from short-term to long-term memory, encoding the information. And that doesn't work with kids who can't be frustrated. It doesn't work with kids who can't sort of persevere and push through and look at it from another angle. Um, The kids who just give up can't benefit from desirable difficulties. So that's sort of the key equation there, you know, in terms of why over-parenting, directive parenting, controlling parenting, whatever you want to call it, why it undermines learning. All those little things we do to help our kids that make us feel better because we're saving, rescuing, supporting, loving, those things render our kids less likely to be able to push through and persevere and stick with frustration long enough to benefit from things like desirable difficulties. We'll be right back after this quick break. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body. And so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. So in our house these days, Darren and I have been working together to up-level our nutrition and healthy lifestyle habits. Maybe it's our age, our changing bodies, my shifting hormones, whatever the reason, I'm here for it. And that's why I'm loving Green Chef, a meal company that makes eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle. Green Chef offers gut-friendly recipes each week and is committed to providing a holistic approach to nutrition by offering meals that contribute to the overall well-being of your entire body. Darren and I are particularly big fans of their nutrient-dense, science-backed gut and brain health recipes, developed in partnership with registered dietitians that improve digestion, reduce bloat, and also boost energy and immunity. This week's favorites, turkey, black bean, and sweet potato chili, and the Baja chicken bowls with mango salsa. I mean, don't those sound delicious? But if that's not your thing, you can choose from a variety of customized meals to suit your lifestyles with preferences like keto, vegan, vegetarian, fast and fit, Mediterranean, gluten-free, and protein-packed. Whatever you choose, you'll get farm-fresh ingredients, organic whole fruits and veggies, and premium proteins, along with chef-crafted, nutritionist-approved recipes delivered straight to your door. 
Go to greenchef.com slash 60 tilt and use code 60 tilt to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. That's 60% off plus 20% off your next two months when you use the code 60 tilt at greenchef.com slash 60 tilt. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. Well, so many differently wired kids and so many kids in general, perfectionism is a huge issue right now. Yeah. I see it a lot in our community, especially with highly gifted kids. Absolutely. And on top of that, for, you know, frustration with ADHD and other diagnoses and just other ways of being is also something that a lot of these kids struggle with. So how do we help kids who already have maybe a lower threshold for tolerance or a more fixed mindset? How do we help them foster more of a growth mindset knowing that it might look different for them than it would for a neurotypical kid. Right. So two things. Um, I did an article for the New York Times that called something like um, when when kids say I can't and parents know they can. And one of the really great pieces of advice I got in there, it was really about um, learned helplessness. It turns out that our sort of default mode as human beings when faced with har- long-term hardship, hardship, you know, whether that's frustration or pain or whatever, is to kind of go helpless. And it is a learned thing as well. I interviewed Katie Hurley for that article. She's a, uh, She works with kids, especially kids who've been newly diagnosed with learning disabilities. And one of the things that she told me is that it's so important for the parents of kids with newly diagnosed learning disabilities to not let the fact that they feel bad about their kid having those learning disabilities, not let the fact that they feel guilty or that they they want to make sure the kid isn't feeling bad about themselves to underestimate what their kid's capable of and sort of do more for them. Um, that stepping back, even with kids who have learning differences, that stepping back and sort of taking a breath and saying, okay, well, if I think my kid's threshold for what they can do is here, let me just stick my toe over that line and just assume a little tiny bit more and help my kid see themselves as less helpless, that that's really important. And it's something that Katie sees a lot in her practice is sort of this fostering learned helplessness in kids who have newly diagnosed learning issues because we feel bad about it. The second thing is that for all kids, not just kids with learning issues or whatever that are differently wired, one of the things that we can do with all kids, especially kids who have a tendency toward, you know, being obsessed with perfectionism is to focus more on the process of whatever it is the kid's doing as opposed to the product. Um, Perfectionist kids tend to be overly focused on the product. What is, you know, the end result of this? What does it look like? Is this final draft perfect? Is this quiz perfect? Is this answer perfect? If we can focus on getting off the grades and the, the end product, thing and saying, well, what are you going to do to make that happen? What did you do to study for that test? What are you going to do next time? What did, what worked and what didn't work? Um, You know, you say your friend got an A on that test and you got a D. Well, what did your friend do that you didn't do? Have you talked to the teacher to see what you could change about the next time you do this? Um, If you did well, what, that's interesting. What are you going to take away from this as a successful part of what you did? You know, Schools these days are so incredibly focused on the product, the grade, the score, the points, that we tend to lose sight of the process. And the process is really, focusing on process is really what's key in helping all kids sort of back off from their need for every tiny detail to be perfect all the time. It's a way for backing off on anxiety and stress and really getting back to what's important, which is supposed to be about the learning process to begin with. So process over product and take a cold, hard look at 
whether or not you're slightly underestimating your child. And we, I think we all tend to do it as our kids get bigger. It's hard to see them not needing us as much. And even if we're desperate for them to not need us as much, there are certain things I still kind of sort of want my kid to need me for, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) especially since my youngest is, you know, getting to the point where he doesn't need me as much anymore. And it's nice to be needed. I I like that. But I also want him to find his competence and especially in the areas where he's particularly weak. And so it's been incredibly gratifying for me anyway, to see that these places where he had huge deficits are slowly becoming huge areas of pride for him. Like he, every once in a while we say, oh my gosh, do you remember how you would have handled this a year ago? Do you remember how stressful taking this shirt into a store to return it would have, you wouldn't have been able to do it a year ago. You would have just wept and look at you, you're, you're going and doing it. You know, that's, I'm so proud of you for that progress. You know, we tend to lose, lose sight of that progress. There's so many things that are popping through my mind right now. Um, You know, and this idea of us slightly underestimating our kids. One of the things that I'm just realizing I'm guilty of, I think I do a pretty good job with all this. I'm just going to say, however, I'm recognizing it, even in just hearing you talk, that sometimes just to avoid disturbing the peace, I let things go. You know, I homeschool my kid. He can be volatile at times. He could be an intense person. And when we're having a good day, yeah. it's really hard to then, you know, push on something that, you know, I, sometimes I take the easy way out. And that's really more about me being comfortable. Right. I'm realizing. Well, and what's what's difficult about that is that sometimes it's the quiet sort of calm moments when it's the best possible time to approach something that is otherwise really a flashpoint. So, you know, the last thing you want to do is bug your kid about the fact that they've been forgetting their books every day when everyone's upset about the fact that they're forgetting their books every day, right? So having a quiet moment when you're able to sort of, everyone's happy and you've had a little snack and everybody's blood sugar is where it's supposed to be. And, but don't, you know, not talking about something in terms of nagging, but talking about it in terms of problem solving. You know, I really want to help you with this thing. What do you think would be helpful for me? You know, you're, you're having trouble remembering your books when you leave today. So I want to stop nagging you about that. So let's talk about some ways, some systems that we could put in place, some things that you, how would you picture a way that you could remember these things. Or, you know, we're constantly fighting about homework. And what would a perfect homework day look like for you? How would you do it? Where would you do it? What time would you do it? Um, That kind of stuff. Asking kids for their input on helping you solve problems is like, it's revolutionary because they're not used to being asked. So, But I totally get it about not wanting to disturb the peace. I'm completely guilty of that. Yes, it's all too easy. Even just hearing your answer to that question, we recently had Dr. Ross Green on the podcast who wrote the book, The Explosive Child. And it sounds like so much of this is is really about being proactive and problem solving mm-hmm. together. So it's it, I love that it connects with that conversation as well. It's getting ahead of the problem and engaging our kids and figuring out how right. to how to solve it. Well, and also that the the big thing that gift of failure is about is about trying to get our kids back into a state where they're intrinsically motivated to want to do stuff, not because we're dangling carrots in front of them or making sticker charts or threatening them or promising to pay them for grades. And one of the ways we can do that 
is by engaging them in the process because that's giving them autonomy over the details of their lives. You know, I make the analogy when when it's cold outside, you don't say to your toddler, do you want to wear a hat? <laughs> you say, do you want the red hat or the blue hat? And that gives them some choice and some autonomy while you're still guiding smart choices and making kids part of the process of, okay, well, we have trouble getting out of the house every morning. So what Let's write down what you think could be really helpful. What would be helpful for you in the morning so that you can get out the door? That's not only solving the problem, that's giving them autonomy, which is one of the three big parts of um, of inspiring intrinsic motivation. Well, I'm glad you brought intrinsic motivation up. That's one of the things I wanted to ask you about um, when... Asher was younger, and I know this is the case for a lot of of neurologically atypical kids. So much of it is about behavior modification and in the classroom, right? Because teachers have to maintain control somehow and have a system. And so much of that turns out to be earning points or stars. You know, Asher used to collect little things from his teacher he'd kept in his pocket. And if he had a certain amount by the end of the day, you know, and I really struggled. Because I, you know, I read Dan Pink's book, Drive, and I'm like, I want him to be intrinsically motivated. So what are your thoughts on that? He's not, just for the record, we weaned Asher off those systems four years ago or so, and it's just not a part of our world anymore. But is there a time and a place for those behavioral modification systems, in your opinion? Yeah, you know, I get this question a lot because most parents I know use a sticker chart at one point or another, some sort of reward thing at some point or another. And so here's the thing about extrinsic motivators. And you mentioned Dan Pink, and I totally recommend Dan Pink, obviously. But I, what I, the book I really love is the book where he got a lot of his research, where it sort of drive starts, which is with a guy named Edward DC, who wrote a book called uh, Why We Do What We Do, The Science of Self-Motivation. And Dan, I actually got a chance to talk to Dan about this recently. And he was saying, you know, we have 40 years of really, really solid research and not just that solid research. We have meta studies, studies about the studies to show that extrinsic motivators are a disaster when they come to long-term focus on things and creativity. So when it comes to learning, obviously extrinsic motivators are a nightmare because learning should be a long-term endeavor and, and creative. But the exception is, is that extrinsic motivators can work really well for tasks that are like, put these blocks in this box, or, you know, be quiet while you're I'm on the phone for 20 minutes, and you can have this lollipop or whatever, that works fine. The problem is that extrinsic motivators won't work over the long term. So if you're trying to motivate a kid to be a part of the family and do household duties to really want to be a, um, a responsible part of the family, then extrinsic motivators don't work, which is why, you know, just about anyone who talks about how chores should work, if you read, um, uh, An allowance. If you read uh, Ron Lieber's *The Opposite of Spoiled*, one of the things we know is that you know chores should not uh, be tied to money. Like if you're going to give kids an allowance, it should not be tied to household duties. It should be about learning about money. So uh, you know, I am torn on those things because that's how we've always done it, and they seem to work in the short term, which is true. They're kind of uh, deceptive that way. But the problem is, if you go to schools of character, like so, character.org. Um, there's this organization that that nominates and and sort of awards these this this title of national schools of character and you look at those schools and how they get kids to do the right thing for the right reasons there aren't a lot of sticker charts involved there's a lot of conversation about why we do these things you know the sort of know the right and do the right that kind of idea 
if you want kids to be participating in the family dynamics and the family duties, because that's simply the right thing we do, that's what we do for each other, then you have to have a lot of conversations about that. When kids are super, super little, that's where you start it. You say, look, you know, you're a part of this family and you eat food too. And mommy prepared the food or daddy prepared the food. And so um, the way it works in this house is that everybody helps clean up. And that's sort of just part of being a part of a family. So yeah, I'm torn. Um, uh, most parents I know are torn on them. They seem to work in the short term, don't really work in the long term. Um, there's a whole bunch of apps for school stuff that are based on these sort of sticker chart systems. And I personally don't like them. But again, am I just being a Pollyanna thinking that we can get kids intrinsically motivated to do just about anything? Um, and the way we do that is to not use extrinsic motivators. You know, I have to look at that a lot and say, well, sometimes no. Sometimes when a kid is really little and, and they can't make a song with a violin yet, you have to sort of help them get over that hump. And maybe the fa easiest way to do that is with extrinsic motivators. So this isn't a black and white kind of thing. I think if we can get off extrinsic motivators as much as possible, great. If you want to use them intermittently for short-term goals or laser focused sort of tasks, then go for it. But um, the goal should be to get off of them. We'll be right back after this quick break. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, 
Life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for answering that. Yeah, that was, you know, it, it ended up for us, we weaned off them pretty organically. And I was, it, I had to look back and be like, Oh, my gosh, we're not using that anymore. It just kind of happened. And I yeah. was so relieved. But um, I see it most mostly around charts. And then I get the question a lot having to do with like potty training, you know, like, do you give them an M&M every time they pee in the toilet? And you know, I, that, that stuff is so hard. You know, I handle, I handled it differently, but that doesn't mean that giving them an M&M every time they pee in the toilet isn't going to work. I, you know, I don't know. I know what the research says and the research says, no, don't use sticker charts. Um, is that practical? Not always. Yeah. I guess we do what works until it stops working too. Right. Yeah. The problem is with extrinsic motivators, they will stop working. You know, inflation happens and, um, you know, there's all sorts of reasons it'll stop working. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you before we head off this call, you know, you've taught for many, many years, and statistically, there's four or five differently wired kids in every class. And so I'm just curious, if you have any kind of best practices that you used as a teacher with, you know, knowing your kids probably had many different types of differences. Um, what did you find most successful? Patience. <laughs> I mean, so I don't mean that facetiously either. Uh, you know, I've taught in a lot of different schools. I've taught in hoity-toity private schools where everyone's really well supported. There are a fair number of kids on the spectrum, but for the most part, you know, lots of support at home, plenty of books at home, that kind of thing. I currently teach in an inpatient drug and alcohol rehab for kids. And because we know that some of the biggest risk factors for addiction later on in life are things like academic failure, um, learning issues, uh, aggression early in life, those kinds of things. Um, I have a lot of students who have spent most of their life in the foster care system. And, you know, patience has never, ever been a bigger part of my toolkit than it is now. Um, it's uh, extrinsic motivators also, generally speaking, just don't work with these kids. What does work with the kids I teach now is rules that are based on their safety, knowing that I care and that I'm not, that I'm going to keep my word. Um, that's a sort of a big, big part of what I do now. Um, I tend to be because they've had most adults finally just get frustrated and walk away and say, that's it, I'm done with you. That's the one thing I can't do, mostly because my students will look at me and say, oh, watch this, I'll, I'll you know, fulfill this sort of prediction that all adults leave me by making her, by making her life a misery and then and watching her walk away. And so that's the one thing I can't do. And like I said, I have to always keep my word because they've had a lot of adults not keep their word. So, and consistency. I mean, that's the other thing. It is so hard to be consistent as a teacher when you've got 20 or 30 kids running around a classroom and, you know, there are special circumstances all over the place. And then you have a parent really coming down on you hard to make an exception for this and an exception for that. And, you know, while it's really, really important to give kids the benefit of the doubt and to give kids a break when they really need it, part of that is teaching them to self-advocate and to help so that I can help them be able to tell people when special circumstances are warranted. But in general, just being consistent. I remember there was a teacher that I used to work with who I respected so much. And the students really, even though she was really strict and even though she was really tough, the students knew they 
she was predictable, that she was, she would always follow through. She always meant what she said. And that was really comforting to the students, especially for um, neuroatypical kids. Consistency and predictability can be so important. So when this teacher always meant what she said and always followed through, even if that meant that she took points away or whatever it was or kept you in at lunch because, you know, you didn't do something, that's a consequence that makes sense to them. Rules that make sense, again, are, you know, kids are a lot more likely to follow rules if they know that they're being made because that has to do with safety. Um, So that kind of stuff. And patience is just the biggest part of that, knowing that the kids aren't always going to do what I need them to do the first time I ask, but maybe they need to hear it differently from me. So, yeah. Okay, well, we're close to wrapping up here. And just along those lines of the teacher parent relationship, do you have any maybe advice or tips? I'm I'm always trying to support parents and knowing how to advocate for their right. kids in school. Like from your perspective, what what advice do you have for parents who want to support their kid and they want to have a positive relationship with their child's teacher? Yeah. So there's a great piece of advice that teachers give each other about how to have positive relationships with parents. And I think it flows the other way too. try to make the first interaction a positive one. You know, as a teacher, I try to find some positive thing I can, you know, call home I can make to say, you know, your kid did this really great thing today, because I think, you know, we tend to only get in touch when things are going badly. So know the best way to get in touch with the teacher, know their preferred method of being contacted, and then make it really clear from the beginning that you're on the same team and that you really value and and honor the teacher as a professional. And even if that may not be 100% true, at least try to get yourself on the same team with them because negotiating stuff that's going to inevitably come up over the course of a year is going to be so much easier if your shared interest is in learning and your shared interest is in the kid. If a teacher senses that you're interest is in a grade and not in the learning, we know that right away. So if your first first contact can be positive, and if you know the best ways to get in touch with someone and, and you sort of respect that, you know, calling a teacher at home, you know, while they're having dinner, maybe not the best way to, you know, get in touch the first time around when you're angry about something. But respecting them as a professional is, you know, I can't tell you how much that will grease the wheels for other things down the road. And I know how hard it can be to go into, especially, you know, parents talk, teachers talk. We know who the problematic parents are. You know know who the problematic teachers are. Just a little benefit of the doubt is really great because people change over time. You know, we, as a teacher, I love to not hear all the terrible stuff about the kids coming up into my classroom because Kids can change over the summer and be a very different kid than the one I heard about the spring before. And so sometimes a fresh slate, you know, a clean slate can be a really important way to um, to start afresh with a new class of kids, a new teacher, a new parent, and have actually have the learning matter as opposed to the grades. That's great. I love all of that advice. And thank you for sharing that. And before we go... Where are you on social media if parents want to follow what you're up to and read more about your work? 
So I'm definitely because teachers are the largest profession as a profession. Teachers are the largest users of Twitter. I'm on Twitter quite a bit. I love, you know, people say, oh, isn't Twitter a dark and horrible place? I say not if you follow 11,000 teachers, <laughs> which I do. So I'm on Twitter a lot. Um, I You can always find me at jessicalahey.com. All of my articles or at least links to sort of my most popular stuff is there. All of that parent teacher conference column for three years of the New York Times. Um, you can find me there. If you just Google me in New York Times, it'll all come up. And then I have a podcast that I do with my former New York Times editor about writing. So if you're a person who likes to talk about the process of writing, freelance writing, you know, getting an agent, getting a publisher, you know, promoting your writing, um, we have the a podcast called Hashtag Am Writing with Jess and KJ. And we have, you can find that also on iTunes and all those places where podcasts usually are. Awesome. And you also speak a lot all over the country, right? So there's a good chance listeners will be able to to track you down and see you live. Yeah. And if you go to jessicalahey.com under events, um, you can find that schedule. Oh, and actually under speaking at jessicalahey.com, there's a button that says download speaking bibliography. And there are, that's the bibliography that I sort of let people know about when I'm speaking because all of the articles, in fact, everything I talked about today is there. There's a book for neuro, for parents of non-neurotypical kids, neuroatypical kids, called Ungifted by Scott Barry Kaufman. That one's on there. Um, most of the articles I've talked about are on that bibliography because those are the ones I tend to reference the most. That's such a great resource. Thank you. And yeah, I'm trying to get Scott Barry Kaufman on the podcast. He's so busy since his TED Talk. He's kind of blew up. <laughs> Yeah, and he's working on some new stuff right now that's really exciting. Um, he's, I just, Ungifted for me was a revelation. Uh, I just, it opened my eyes to a lot of, a lot of things that I hadn't thought about um, since I didn't grow up as a special ed kid. I mean, he has this incredible, he has this unique perspective that hardly anyone else has um, as, a, as a special ed kid growing up and now a kid, uh, the kind of, you know, professional who has impact on how we perceive intelligence and how we how we measure intelligence. He's he's just amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. So many good conversations to have. This is one I just need to say thank you. This was fantastic. So fascinating and just fun to be able to chat with you about stuff I've been thinking about for a couple of years now. So thank you so much for this. Well, and I do have to say that there was a chapter in Gift of Failure on parents of kids with special needs. And the chapter got so big that it became like four times the size of any other chapter in the book because there are so many exceptions to every rule and so many different types of wiring and blah, 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 blah. But it is a topic I love to talk about because I don't want parents of um, of kids that you know, have learning differences to think that I'm only talking to parents of neurotypical kids because I'm absolutely not. No, well, this was so insightful and just helpful content for all of us. So thank you so much for your time and for coming by the podcast. Thank you so much for this. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. For the show notes for this episode, visit tiltparenting.com slash podcast and search for this conversation. If you like what you heard on today's episode, I would be grateful if you could take a minute to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a review. Thank you so much for helping us stay visible so people who would benefit from the show can easily find it. If you want to support the show and help me cover the cost of production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. To support the show, just visit patreon.com slash tilt parenting. 
Lastly, if you aren't already part of the online community at Tilt, I invite you to sign up at TiltParenting.com on the box in the bottom where it says join the revolution. Every Thursday, I send out a short email with a quick note from me, a link to that week's podcast episode, and links to five stories from the news that week that are relevant to parents like us. Again, you can sign up and learn more about Tilt at www.tiltparenting.com. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us 